Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Professor Rosie Campbell, Professor of Politics and Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, which I have the privilege of chairing. That means we work together with a marvellous team at what we shorthand as JUL, G-I-W-L. Rosie has authored research on barriers to participation in politics, gendered patterns of support for the populist radical right, and the politics of diversity and political recruitment. Welcome to the podcast, Rosie. Thank you for having me. Delighted you're here. Now, you're a feminist academic and run an institute dedicated to advancing gender equality. Where did that start for you? And when was the moment you realised this is what you wanted to dedicate your career to? It didn't quite start with, but it nearly started with a conversation on the phone with you. (laughs) Um, I was um, an academic and political scientist. I've always been really interested in public engagement and working with stakeholders, trying to make a difference in the world. I think a lot of academic research stays behind academic paywalls and doesn't have the impact it should. When you spoke to me about the Institute and your vision for actually bringing research about what makes a difference to accelerate women's access to leadership into the hands of people who can make a difference. I found that incredibly exciting. So that's the attraction for me. I'm very happy to take the credit for that. That's fabulous. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about your family background and when it first occurred to you that girls get treated differently to boys? Yeah, I mean, my parents are very focused on education. Both the first generation of their families to go to university, had their formative years in the 60s, I wouldn't quite call them hippies, but members of the campaign for real ale, you know, quite a liberal, a very liberal environment. And I had no sense whatsoever at home that girls were capable of doing anything less than boys. You know, my mum did chemistry degree and she was very much focused on us doing well in maths and science. And I became aware at school gradually that girls were thought to be less good at maths and less good at science. And I realised I was really quite good at it. I've always been someone who finds it hard to keep my mouth shut if I don't think something's fair. And, I, you know, I was vocal about those things as, as a young person and, and continue to be now. So I think it's that juxtaposition between having really quite an equal family life and then being out in the world and realising that people's expectations of you are shaped by their expectations of what a girl or a woman is like. Now, for the Aussie listeners, you're going to have to explain what is the campaign for real ale and how do we all join? It sounds fantastic. <laughs> it still exists, camera. And I think at the time, a lot of traditional pubs, you know, were, were perhaps closing. There was a focus on lager. And, you know, there was a sort of political movement to bring traditionally brewed beer back into pubs. I have to say at this moment, traditional beer and ale is in no danger in the UK. <laughs> Absolutely no danger. 
The proceeds from this podcast go into supporting Jules' research. So can you tell us about that research? What's happening right now? What are the researchers working on today? Well, so we've got a range of projects we're working on. We've got four research streams, actually nearly five that we're working on. We look at women in work. We look at gender and data because you've got to measure things to see if progress is happening. We look at representations of women in the media. We look at the impact of women politicians. Couldn't miss that one, given you're the boss. And then we've got a new stream of research looking at grassroots women's leadership. And right now we've got colleagues working on all those projects. We've got a project that's just started with Deloitte looking at actually what's the policy environment that employers find themselves working within across the globe and what could governments do to support employers to create more inclusive workplaces. That's one of the projects we've got going on at the moment. It's wonderful to be able to partner like that and to make sure through that partnership that we're going to really have an impact in the real world. Yet, sadly, we know the rate of change isn't what any of us would want. The World Economic Forum has predicted that with the current rate of change, it will take 135 years to achieve gender equality and we're in serious danger of backsliding. So that number of years becomes more, not less. What do you think are the main issues we're going to see in the next five to ten years that risk stalling gender equality? What do we really have to be doubling down on to accelerate that rate of change? In wealthier countries, in high-income countries, I think there's a risk of complacency. I think if you look at the research that we did with Ipsos Mori for the last International Women's Day, there's a sort of substantial minority of people think that, you know, gender equality has been achieved. And that persistent minority reflects, I think, a broader sense that actually men and women, particularly middle class men and women in, in high income countries are equal. And yet when you actually look at the statistics, I'm afraid that's really not true. I mean, even if, if we start with that privilege group, men are massively overrepresented in positions of power right across the board, be that in finance, CEOs of large corporations, the judiciary, politics. And worryingly, the tech sector is actually one of the worst sectors. I think about 9% of um, leaders in the tech sector are women. Of course, this is so important for the future. And then if we start to look beyond that group and take a more intersectional lens, we can see that around the world, women are disproportionately represented amongst the world's most poor and uh, marginalised people. So there's a long way to go. And it's that complacency that worries me the most, I think. It is incredible to see coming through in the research that people do think that all of the problems have been resolved. So, uh, so much more to do and uh, we need in that to be holding people into the discussion, men and women. But I want to turn now to your own research. Discussions of the women's vote are a staple of every election, as though women are somehow distinct from the normal voter. But given that women make up 51% of the UK population and an even greater proportion of eligible voters, the average voter is in fact a woman. How damaging are gendered assumptions about voting behaviour? What does your research show? Well, I think historically there's been a sense that women voters, exactly as you've described, has been treated as some kind of little niche target subgroup and there'll be the odd newspaper story during elections about wooing women voters as if they're a homogeneous group. And I think that's the problem, that in the mind of strategists, in the mind of the media, too often they see a man when they think of a voter. And if you think about a woman, it's probably quite a stereotypical view rather than thinking about women in all our diversity. And the problem with that 
it's twofold. I mean, politically, it's a completely flawed campaign strategy. But also in terms of policy delivery, it means that the issues that affect women differently from men on average are often not at the forefront of political campaigns when they could actually be vote winners. For example, in the last two elections in the UK, a greater proportion of women, particularly younger women, have voted Labour than Conservative. And we've actually seen a reverse of the traditional trend. It used to be women voted Conservative more often. Now women are more likely to vote Labour. But it's astonishing to me. I've been at public events where politicians and journalists have been talking about voting behaviour in the last couple of elections. They've not mentioned this. You know, I've asked a question. It's just not even on the radar. And I think as long as these issues are sidelined, then policies are not going to be designed with women voters in mind. So I'm so glad you've mentioned that average voter is a woman. I want to go and write that all over the, the you know the notice boards all around Parliament so that actually we start to think about how would you shape policy? How would you shape campaigns if you started to think about that more seriously? And from your research, are you able to comment on trends in other places? Is there a more generalised movement around the world for women voters to put their votes with uh, progressive political parties rather than historically being associated with more conservative voting patterns? Yes, traditionally. So um, Pippa Norris at Harvard has done some fantastic global research looking at these trends and shown that as women have moved from traditional societies where more often are located in the private sphere in the home have been and more religious have been more likely to vote for conservative parties, small c conservative, not necessarily radical right parties. But as women have moved into higher education and paid employment around the world, they've shifted to the left. And it used to be the UK was an anomaly. And I think what we have paid not enough attention to is the policy platforms that parties offer. So if you look at the US, there's a very well-known gender gap. Since 1980, a greater proportion of women voting for Democratic presidential candidates than men. If you look at the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, they've got quite different offers when it comes to gender equality. And what the Democratic Party are very good at getting women who are in paid employment, women who are university educated to support them. And that's through a much more feminist policy programme. You mentioned the radical right, and let's turn to the French presidential election, which concluded with the re-election of President Macron. His opponent was Marine Le Pen, a populist right-wing figure. Despite her defeat, if we look around the world, we see victories by the populist right and pushbacks against women's equality. For example, in the US, we're seeing a big debate about reproductive freedom and various states pushing back on that and court cases. In Hungary, there was an outlawing of gender studies under the leadership of Prime Minister Orban. Based on your research, how should we be thinking about the populist right and its impact for women? It's a fascinating question. And actually, the French election is an interesting test case. Now, obviously, it's going to take a little while to get the most robust data from that election. But analysis that was done in advance suggests that actually, historically, Marine Le Pen had a disadvantage amongst women voters and that that reversed this time. And one of the reasons researchers think that's happened is that a vote for the populist radical right is often a vote for a risky party, a small party that's untested. And they, uh, researchers sometimes argue that women are more risk averse, less likely to vote for those parties. I think that's part of the story. But my own research shows something else as well. 
Populist radical right parties aren't necessarily always essentially anti-feminist. There is that association and you've described lots of different um, incarnations, which most certainly are. But if you actually look in some instances, for example, in Denmark, parties on the populist radical right have shifted their narrative about gender equality and actually started to create what I think is quite a toxic narrative, saying that actually immigration threatens gender equality. So historically, women are less likely to vote for the populist radical right. But actually, when the parties shift their agenda on some of these issues, you can see women being drawn into them. And I think the trends we see around the world are about this interaction between left-right politics in terms of authoritarianism, in terms of economics, and attitudes to gender roles. And this strongman politics that we see in the various cases that you described, particularly Bolsonaro in Brazil or Putin in Russia, there's a deliberate portrayal of a particular kind of what I would call toxic masculinity. And I don't think it's entirely unsurprising that's slightly less attractive to women than some men. It is worrying, though, that some of the populist right is evolving a new narrative to try and kind of ensnare women with an anti-immigration message. That's a really interesting yeah, dimension. Yeah, and I think it, it also reminds us that sometimes some feminist scholarship almost valorises women as if women are somehow morally or ethically superior to men. And that really is not the case. We're shaped, socialisation creates gendered forces that can have gendered outcomes, but actually women are just as capable of being xenophobic or supporting parties that would be very hostile to diversity and integration as men are. But it's the context that that's provided within can be gendered. And that's how we see the gender gaps emerging in terms of party support. Focusing back here on the UK, politics here week after week after week, it seems, throws up new and gruesome examples of politicians treating women badly, bullying, sexual assault. There's been an instance of a politician watching pornography on his phone in the House of Commons. And it's not isolated incidents. Now the current suite of cases and complaints is measured in the dozens and dozens. When you look at that, What's your analysis? I mean, we would all be hoping, I think, that change is happening and that politics, because more women are becoming involved in it, would be a more welcoming environment for women. Yet it seems we're going backwards. I mean, one thing I'd start to say is I was listening to a very prominent government minister on a a news programme at the weekend who talked about there being a problem of some bad apples in Parliament. I think we really need to ditch that narrative. When you get into this number of cases, what you're talking about is a culture that permits this kind of behaviour. And the research from organisational psychology shows that actually that permissive culture is where we will see these most visible most horrific cases, but actually they're supported by the underneath of the iceberg you can't see are all the small micro behaviours, the microaggressions that actually allow that culture to flourish. And that's what's happening in Parliament. And that's what's manifesting itself here. And so we shouldn't be surprised. And there have been over many years, a number of reports, investigations showing that Parliament is not in many ways a healthy place to work. But what gives me some hope, I was speaking to a senior woman politician yesterday, is that she thinks that younger women who have entered parliament in recent years and have been socialised in workplaces where this is 
hopefully more often not acceptable, just not going to put up with it. And they're reporting it in a way that they didn't before. I hope that's right, because I think depressing as this is, we have to use it to galvanise us for action rather than to think nothing's ever going to change. And I think this is a real opportunity for change. It's very hard to keep coming up with that bad apple argument. It's starting to look like the whole crate needs sorting out. (laughs) Definitely the whole crate. When we look outside the parliament for women who are publicly recognisable, whether they're politicians or women recognisable from other walks of life, what we find is that the online environment that they face is a sewer of sexist, misogynist content. Even in a country that many would look to for inspiration, uh, Jacinda Ardern's New Zealand, research compiled by a group called the Disinformation Project concluded misogynistic targeting of women in the public eye was rising, with many of the comments including threats to rape or kill. Once again, why is it as bad as this and what can we be doing about it? It's such a huge problem. For about 10 years, I did an evaluation of a mentoring um, training program run in the UK by Fabian Women's Network. And when I started doing that evaluation, very often the themes that came out amongst the women who were participating was how having this opportunity to work together created opportunities to gain confidence, hone their public speaking skills. The last time I did that evaluation was in 2016, just after the horrific murder of Joe Cox MP. And the whole tone of what the women involved felt that this space was for had changed so much. It was about safe spaces. It was about having that solidarity with other women so that if somebody attacks you online, that actually there's, you know, there, there is a support network there. And I walked away from that absolutely horrified that, you know, in this period that I've been studying for over 20 years, in some ways, it really feels that things have gone backwards. I run the candidate survey here in the UK, and we've been monitoring only recently, because it wasn't an issue that we thought about, you know, in the more distant past, but recently the, the extent to which candidates report having experienced harassment, intimidation, abuse. It is unsurprising to know that it is worse for women. Women are more frightened by the kind of abuse. It's more sexualized and ethnic minority women are more often targets. What do we do about it? I think we have to take a collective approach. I think we have to use that to say, There's still a lot of work to do and we need to be doing it together. We need to bring men on board to feel that they can raise their voice about these issues. And I personally think that there needs to be something done about social media and the way it's regulated. The anonymity, the lack of accountability compared to traditional news media is a massive problem. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think the anonymity enables people to do things that they would not do face-to-face or if they were in an environment where they could be identified. You mentioned earlier the term intersectionality and you've just made the point that a lot of online abuse is disproportionately directed at women of colour. Can you talk to us about what intersectionality means. I mean, for you, this is part of the work you do at Jewel. Given your family, it would be something you also think about in your personal life. How can we as feminists be thinking about intersectionality and in our own daily practice, bringing it into the way in which we treat other people or think about political issues or change agendas? I think it's absolutely crucial that we think about how gender interacts with our other background characteristics. You mentioned my family. My husband was originally from Ghana, so and I've got two mixed-race daughters. So I'm very conscious about racism and the impact on, on, on young people and on women in particular. But I think personal experience aside, I think for all of us, 
it's really important to listen. And I think research also needs to, rather than being top down, we need to, in our research, we also need to include enough qualitative ethnographic type of research which actually allows people's lived experience to come forward because if we have researchers are always designing the questions and thinking what's important then there's a real danger we'll miss you know actually what's going on in people's lives and how to study that effectively and so I think it's about really making sure listening and also recruitment into professions we now know that it makes a difference whether women are in the room and actually women need to be in the room in all their diversity. So that is absolutely essential. Would you encourage one of your daughters into politics <gasps> if she walked home and said, Mum, I want to be Prime Minister? My daughters are inspired by you and the fact <laughs> that I work with you. Would I want that for them? Of course I would support them. It's such an important job and you know, we're only going to make the world a better place if people of goodwill really give their lives to it. But it is giving your life to politics, a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week job. And you, my gosh, you've got to be resilient. Would I wish that on my daughters? I'm not sure I'd wish it on them, but if they wanted to do it, I'd be behind them all the way. You mentioned before research streams on role models. What difference do role models make? How important is it that women can look and see their faces reflected in all their diversity? It's so important. We forget that sexism can be internalised. It's not just how other people project onto us. It's what we think about ourselves. You know, it's amazing research in the US looking at students' performance in exams young men and women who've both entered the same prestigious program and a randomized control trial on the front of one it says women do just as well in this exam as men and then nothing on the other in the treatment group where they have this message the women outperform the boys and that's not because women are better than uh, it's because they'd been held back by their own internalized sexism and actually the barriers that they'd gone through to get onto that program were greater than the boys and so when you took that that self-restraint away they flourished and did even better you talk about the pictures on the room on the walls there's so much research showing that those kind of pictures can influence your performance in that very same exam if you sat there and you all had pictures of men or white men or whatever group feels alien to you that can suppress your own performance and then role models themselves as a lovely bit of research that I always like to cite that Ian McAllister did in Australia, looking at your time in office, Julia. And when you were in office, young women's interest and engagement in politics went up. Sadly, when you left, it went down again. So we need a number two uh, woman prime minister of Australia. to. But it's so, so important in terms of creating an expectation that this is something that someone like me can do. Something very heartening in all of that, that uh, we can make a difference. By women getting there, we can get on a virtuous circle that more women and girls think I could be there and, and more come through. Now, looking at the world of business, you did mention some research work with Deloitte earlier. We know that many companies are thinking about gender equality. They're active on gender equality. They want to get it right. And yet we also know when we look at some of the things that businesses are doing, that they're choosing to do things that aren't as impactful. So how can we make sure that sort of every minute, every dollar that's spent on gender equality in a business goes for the maximum change impact? There's so much good research on this about what works. First of all, it's so important to treat 
diversity and inclusion as a core business objective. If you put in a little box and say, here's our diversity and inclusion officer or whatever you call that role, they don't have real power or authority, they don't have a seat at the board, then that's not as impactful as if it's coming right from the CEO modeled throughout the whole culture in the organization. So that's so important. And then if it's a core business objective, you don't just window dress with a little bit of um, online training. Actually, it's much, much deeper than that. You're looking at the whole business cycle, right the way from recruitment, retention to promotion, product, service, design, delivery, as supply chains, every aspect, and thinking about actually diversity and whose voices are included in decision making along the way and measurement, you know, actually who's coming in at one end and going out the other and then going in and doing the qualitative work if women are exiting to find out why. It's about being really rigorous and actually recognising that a little bit of diversity training is not going to fix it. And likewise, just bringing in women without changing the culture won't fix it either because they'll exit at a high velocity. So you really need to think about How do you create an environment where everyone can flourish? And many companies would do things like run women's empowerment programs. You know, the women go off to something. Is that the best way of skilling businesses up or are there other models? Well, it can be helpful to create spaces where women can network and and, and share their experiences. But that fixing the women approach doesn't address the structural barriers. So if you've got a recruitment process where men and women with the same identical CV, which your research has shown where men and women the same identical CV will be judged differently. Perhaps the young man has got potential and the young woman is a bit inexperienced, exactly the same CV. Then sending that young woman for training so that her CV is actually more glowing than the young man's isn't the way to fix it. The way to fix this is to say, well, how are we evaluating these CVs? If we made them name blind at one stage or another, would it change things? If we actually brought to the fore how we are making, if we did them in batches and we could see actually all the men seem to be in this pile and all the women in this pile and yet they've got the same overall score we can identify the problem so it's about being rigorous and realizing women's lack of talent isn't the source of this problem it's systematic bias in the way we do things obviously our mission is to bring the evidence about what works to accelerate women's access to leadership into the hands of people who make change and one way we're doing that is with a new exec education program which is about building gender inclusive workplaces so the opposite of fixing the women approach this is all about how do we create cultures and design systems that actually are meritocratic for everybody. So if you're at all interested, please look at our website or contact me directly. We'd love to have you involved in the course. We've inevitably talked a lot about women. When we talk about gender equality, of course, we talk about women. But we do need men to join this fight. How are we going to bring men along with us? We never would have had the change we've had without men who are passionate about these issues. Women would never have got the vote if men hadn't been persuaded to vote for it. The important message is that gender equality is good for everyone. And I really think this is something that feminists like myself, we need to do better. We need to think about what are the issues men face. There's a lot of research looking at um, mental health in the workplace and how actually cultures of masculinity contests are really damaging for lots and lots of men or how men who are more introverted leaders miss out in those kinds of environments. Or many younger men want to be more involved in their family life if they choose to have children and actually stereotypes make that difficult for them to do. You know, we need to engage with these issues and show that actually this isn't a zero-sum game. Gender equality is actually good for the economy and good for us as individuals. What's your proudest achievement to date in your leadership of Jewel? And what do you think we'll be able to achieve, say, in the next 10 years? 
I am so proud of the team and so proud of how the team come together, the way they work. And I think one project that really comes to mind is the gender pay gap reporting research that the team produced last year that was funded by the UN Foundation. We worked with the Fawcett Society and the Thomson Reuters Foundation on that research. And I felt it was really impactful in terms of raising what can governments do to create an environment where they're collecting data that is really useful in terms of measuring change. So that's something that I'm really proud of. But there are, there's so much more that we can do. And I would love to see us do more about grassroots women's leadership. Obviously, we've just started that program of research and our wonderful colleague, Aleda, is leading that. And we are interested in leadership right from the grassroots to the elite. And I want us to do more to show how around the world that journey can be possible for women from grassroots right up to elite leadership and what are the barriers and facilitators along the way. I always conclude the podcasts with asking my guests about a fact and their reaction to it. The fact for you is as follows. According to UN Women, as of the 1st of September 2021, there are 26 women serving as heads of state and or government in 24 countries. At the current rate, gender equality in the highest positions of political power will not be reached for another 130 years. Wow. I mean, I'd like to say I'm surprised, but obviously I'm quite familiar with those figures. I'd like other people to become more familiar. The thing is, we could change it quite quickly. We feel that, you know, if you work out that incremental rate of progress, but if you look at many countries around the world have introduced quotas to have better representation of women in parliaments, we can deliver this change if we galvanise into action. But if we just think it's going to happen on its own, it just simply won't. It won't. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to deal with? I mean, of course, every woman has experienced, I believe, and certainly the statistics show every woman has experienced some kind of sexual harassment. And I probably won't share that right now. But just in terms of misogyny in the workplace, I did have an experience when I was promoted when I was younger, where a male colleague came to see me and told me I'd skipped the queue. It's not the way the promotions work. You, you're sort of told that you have met the criteria and encouraged to apply. I hadn't sort of skipped any queue, but he made a special appointment with me to come and tell me how I'd skipped this queue. And I'm glad to say I kept skipping the queue. So uh, I didn't take it to heart. <laughs> if you had all the power in the world for a moment, what's the one thing you would change for women? Wow, that's such a huge question. I think violence against women and girls, sadly, is still such a huge problem. And it's very hard to look around the world today without thinking about all the women and girls who are suffering violence against women and girls. I mean, thinking about Ukraine and what's happening. I'll put a stop to that tomorrow. Virginia Woolf says, why are women so much more interesting to men than men are to women? <laughs> Professor Rosie Campbell says... <gasps> Oh, Virginia, I'm not really sure that's true. I suppose in a heterosexual relationship or in heterosexual relations, that might be true. I'm a big believer that actually we humans have got very plastic brains and that we transform ourselves to fit in the societies that we're in. And I don't think men and women are really so different or more or less interested in each other. Sorry, Virginia, I love all your work, but I disagree. <laughs> Rosie, thank you for this conversation. I very much enjoyed it. Now we better get back to work. Let's get on it. <laughs> Let's get on it. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. 
Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash giwl and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at giwlkings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.